Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, your host for today's podcast. On Opinionated Science, we take complicated and jargon-filled science, make it comprehensible, and wrap it neatly with a nice ribbon for you to stick under your tree. This is the Christmas episode. Today, we're going to explore the science of Christmas dinner, reviewing studies from last year that are on meat, veg, fancy cutlery, and even chocolate. And joining me for this science smorgasbord are, in no particular order, my colleagues Lucy Lawrence, Kate Robinson, Laura Lansdowne, and Molly Campbell. How are we all doing, team? Are you feeling Christmassy? Hello. Yeah, pretty Christmassy. Great. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like to hear. I, I mean, I, I presume we'll, you know, in post-production, get licenses for all the, the Christmas music I want to put in, but I haven't quite organised that yet. Um, <laughs> Before we get into these scientific Christmas studies, I'd wanted to hear from everyone, what is the part of Christmas dinner that we all look forward to the most? Uh, for me, I have to say, it's my mum's prawn cocktail sauce. Yum. She makes it, it's homemade, it's homemade. And I suspect it tastes so good due to the amount of mayo she puts in it. I try not to look when she's making it so it doesn't ruin the magic, but when it gets on the table, it's just the most delicious thing ever. What else do people like? I'm going to be super controversial and I'm going to go Brussels sprouts. I know that that is a... That's weird. weird that's a weird one, that's I know, really but it's, <laughs> no, I love I, them. I like Brussels. I've actually had a few Brussels before it was even December. So... The dream. Yeah, they're pretty good. They've got Did to be cooked, right? Um, yeah, although they were sold out, actually, when I went to the shop yesterday, so I was quite upset. Yeah. Oh, so... Lucy you, probably wait. got there before me. Yeah, yeah. we did. <laughs> how do you make them, Lucy? Are they just vanilla? Um, or? I mean, not a great question for me, probably for my dad. <laughs> oh, I see. It's but he, yeah, he does the best ones. I've got to say, I think I need to find new work friends because I'm horrified <laughs> by this. <laughs> Molly. What's um, your favourite thing then, Molly? Pigs in blankets. Come on, guys. Oh, that is good. I mean, sorry to the vegetarians out there. I know that is probably meat wrapped in meat is quite offensive. Um, but for me personally, that's the highlight of Christmas dinner. I don't. I do like a good roast roast potato though. Mm, roasties are good when they're good. Like when they're really crispy on the outside and soft inside. Yeah. Roasties are like that thing that after I'm, you know, more food than man. And there's if there's still like three of the you know the little ones that are like really you keep going crispy. Yeah. Yeah, they just get shoveled in on top of a pile of food sticking out of my mouth. Can't help it. I might redeem myself by also saying I do love like Christmas parsnips. Oh yes, like caramelisation, honey, honey drip. Oh yum! Mm -hmm. You guys need help. Okay, what, what, what? <laughs> Come on, Kate. What's your, what's your suggestion? She's holding it's back. The, <laughs> the absolute standard, you know, Yorkshire pudding drenched in gravy. Oh, yeah. I don't know why yeah. you guys are picking vegetables. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> No one yeah. said dessert, actually. No one said anything sweet. So probably I think by maybe the time you get to it, you can't eat it. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> My parents oh, cool. always like have about a hundred dessert options as well, and they present them to you, and you're like, I don't think I can do anything at the moment. So probably doesn't help that I eat like about a thousand chocolates before it's even <laughs> ten a.m. as well. Have to be well, uh, I, I mean, we'll, we'll get into all these different foods and more, but I think um, to start us off, uh, a couple of our 
co-presenters here have some vegetable science to talk about. Uh, now, Laura, I believe you have a vegetable-themed science study for us to uh, to discuss. I do. Yeah. Shall I kick things off? Go for it. Um, so mine is um, cauliflower. So obviously everyone, no one mentioned it, but cauliflower cheese is also a favourite on Christmas Day. Um, and we're talking about the Romanesco cauliflower. So I don't know if you've ever seen a Romanesco cauliflower. Sometimes it's called a Romanesco broccoli as well, but we'll stick with cauliflower. Um, not really ideal for podcasts because you can't actually see them, but they're really pretty. Um, and they have these kind of spiraling conical structures um, that kind of comprise the, 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 the they call them the curd of the um, cauliflower, Ew. so the, ed the edible part of the cauliflower. Um, and my story um, or my study that I'm going to talk about today is just about um, how a team of researchers have actually identified the genes responsible for creating the spiralling structures that comprise that cauliflower. Um, and they were actually able to replicate the patterns in a small flowering plant. So these, so cauliflowers together with some flowers, including dahlias and daisies, I'm not sure, dahlias just have that beautiful kind of pattern, really striking sim symmetry. They develop defined arrangements of spirals and it's, it's almost like the elements create like a constant divergence angle from each other and they repeat themselves over and over and over indefinitely. And this kind of spiralling structure is called a fractal. So a team of researchers, and it was led by um, Christoph Godin. He's been working with another researcher for 12 years, looking at the, like to try and find out the underlying mechanism responsible for the spiraling patterns, the formation of these patterns. And they've actually now figured out how they form. So to investigate, they used um, a model plant called Arabidopsis thaliana. And the reason that they chose this model is because it belongs to the same family as the cauliflower. Um, and in the 1990s, researchers discovered um, a variant that, due to the mutation of two genes, transformed its flowering stems into these cauliflower-like structures or curds, so these spiralling structures. Um, so they thought that might be a good model system to kind of investigate a bit further. So they identified a core kind of set of genetic factors that were essential for the development of these curds. Um, and they actually managed to find three specific genes that, that caused them. So in a nutshell, really, that was the study. But it was really interesting and just they're so pretty. Um, I'll obviously, perhaps we can share a picture with our listeners mm -hmm. and we upload. But um, yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting study, quite a lighthearted study. And it just showed 12 years they've been looking at this. So it just shows like with perseverance, you can kind of get there in the end. They must be um, absolutely starving. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully actually I actually like cauliflower, you know, after all that. Well, they're, they're going to start investigating other cauliflowers now. So they obviously, it hasn't kind of put them off. So they're still going, they're going to dig into different um, edible cauliflowers. So, um, Hey, yeah. if you can get 12 years of funding for fractal foods, then just keep going. Exactly. You know? so yeah. True. I did actually Google whether you can make cauliflower cheese with this type of cauliflower. And apparently <laughs> you can. There are recipes available. So it is fairly relevant to this um, podcast. <laughs> Wow. But yeah, no, it was really interesting. Um, so we shall see. I'll have to report back and see whether they've found out anything about other cauliflowers for yeah. next year, perhaps. Yes. So I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> do that. Can't wait for the update. 
No, that was really cool. I like yeah. the word fractal as well. Yeah, and um, there was actually, they've actually found, so the, the term was coined by um, a French American, a Polish-born French American mathematician um, called Professor Mandelbrot, um, and he coined the term fractal, um, and they've shown that fractals kind of kind of their relevances in many areas so it could be science engineering finance um it's just it's something that can kind of is very overarching mm. um and i think um Mandelbrot did um a lecture a few years ago on kind of um fractal geometry and like all the different fields that it's relevant to um so it seems like yeah it's just a yeah crazy really. for me <laughs> Look, you don't like vegetables, Kate. Now you're saying it's too. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. No, totally <laughs> no, but I thought it was. I'll, I'll obviously I'll share some pictures, but yeah, they're just so sure. pretty. Um. So yeah, that was my story. Now I I know one of the other team members is is raring to talk about their favourite vegetable, the humble broccoli. Molly, did you want to to go into more detail about your broccoli study? Yeah, if I have to say the word broccoli, I will. <laughs> Um, so, interestingly, my study also talks about cauliflower as well. So, yeah, a bit of both of my least favourite foods. Um, so, my research that I picked for this uh, festive themed podcast is published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. Um, this study kind of stood out to me because it kind of underpins the mechanisms as to why some people love and some people hate vegetables that belong to the brassica genus. So that includes um, broccoli, cauliflower and cabbage, amongst others, of which I don't like any of those. So I think that's why I particularly was interested in reporting on this. So the study is from the CSIRO and it suggests that a reason why people might not like members of this vegetable family is because of their oral microbiome. Now we've seen loads of research emerge over recent years focusing on the microbiome and kind of the role it plays in human health and disease and I thought it was really cool to look at how it might influence our food choices. Um, so for people that aren't familiar the oral microbiome is essentially all the little bacteria um, and basically molecules living in your mouth so they're alive not to creep anybody out, um, but they are involved a lot in kind of the breaking down of foods that you eat. And sometimes, I think if you have smelly breath, it can be because of the veg, not the vegetables, the bacteria that are present in your oral microbiome. So fun factoid for you there. Um, so they wanted to look at in this study why there are such polarizations with these foods and also why that tends to be the case with children and adults so a lot of the time children hate members of the brassica family and sometimes this hatred kind of goes away as you come into adulthood probably hasn't for me probably never will but you never know for others it might um so they wanted to look at why this is the case so previous studies have looked at kids preferences for tastes and they really like sweet tastes not bitter tastes so brassica vegetables um, they contain something that's called gls compounds i'm sorry i'm gonna have to bring a bit of uh, scientific vocabulary to the table but this stands for glucosinolates and essentially these are broken down into isothiocyanates 
which are associated with bitter tastes. So that's perhaps one reason why you would think, okay, kids don't like brassica vegetables because they're bitter because of these compounds. However, brassica veggies also produce odor active sulfur volatiles, and this is because of the breakdown of S methyl L cysteine sulfoxide. I'm not going to repeat that again because I don't think you need to remember the name of it, but think of sulfur and volatiles and think of smelling. Sulfur is often associated with kind of an eggy smell. I'll let you think about what you want to when that springs to mind, but um, the enzyme that causes the breakdown of these sulfur volatiles is called cysteine sulfoxide lyase. And it's present in the plant tissue. So think about when you're chewing these plants, you're essentially releasing the enzyme to do its work. But there are also bacteria in the mouth that possess the same kind of activity as this enzyme. So previous work kind of showed that adults have different levels of the enzyme present. And this study kind of wanted to see whether children have different levels and how this compares to adults. So what they did is they conducted a large study where they assessed differences in the production of these sulfur smelly volatiles. And they did this in 98 paired children and adults. So they were paired with their parents, which I think is quite interesting. And what they did is initially they asked children to kind of rate the odour compounds that are produced in raw and steamed broccoli and cauliflower. After they've asked the children to rate these smelly compounds, they then took saliva samples and they used a technique known as gas chromatography, olfactometry, mass spectrometry. Try and say that when you've had a beverages. <laughs> You're really, really trying this here on this one. Oh. <laughs> um, so essentially they took these saliva samples and they mixed them with cauliflower powder and they measured how much of these sulfur volatiles were produced, which is indicative of how much of the enzyme that we talked about in the bacteria of the mouth, cysteine lyase, is basically how much activity is going on. And they found that there was quite a lot of variation in the number of the sulfur volatiles that were produced, but children and adults had similar levels which the researchers say is likely because they have very similar microbiomes, their oral microbiomes, meaning they have the similar levels of this bacteria that possess the enzyme activity. So kids with the highest amount of the sulfur volatiles also had rated the most dislike of the compounds that they were asked to smell and rate. But this relationship wasn't mirrored in the adults. So what the researchers say that kind of suggests is that maybe adults over time learn to tolerate the taste and the smell of these foods, essentially teaching themselves to eat them because we're often told these veggies are good for you and you should eat them. So that's what these results are implying. So it's a really interesting study and there are some implications from this as well because further research could essentially look at how we are cooking and processing these vegetables and whether we could manipulate the activity of this enzyme essentially to change the taste, our perception of the taste of these foods and encourage people to eat more of them because there's a lot of health benefits. Um, I mean, it probably goes without saying these vegetables are known for being really helpful in preventing diseases such as cancer. So we're often told to eat our veggies. Um, so I just thought it was a really interesting study highlighting various different elements, so perception of taste, the oral microbiome, and this interesting relationship between 
um, the children and the parents. So there you go. That's, That's really fascinating. fascinating. I love that. Um, one question, if, if someone was to change their oral hygiene, like would the microbiome, if their microbiome changed through like oral hygiene and things, would that, do you reckon that would influence the, their perception of the, of broccoli? That is a good question. And I was wondering this because I know sometimes when you take certain medications as well, like antibiotics are known for obviously changing the composition of like bacteria that can be in your gut and who knows, maybe even your mouth. So mm. maybe that could also be why preferences change over time um, for a lot of people. But yeah, yeah. good question. Interesting. You think of, you think of your, your microbiome, you know, all these studies you mentioned at the start, Molly, suggest that, you know, these shift and change over a lifetime and there's all these events like you mentioned that can change them but you know I think we all have our favorite foods and least favorite foods and those are some things that are often pretty you know stayed and over the years it's interesting isn't it how how one might underlie the other um but yeah maybe uh maybe we'll get some celebrity chefs doing uh microbiome paired uh custom meals you know I think you've just predicted the future Rory <laughs> That's trademarked, everyone. That's that's my idea. Just it was here Get it first. Out there. <laughs> uh, now moving on from the uh, side plates of our Christmas dinner onto the main course, Kate, I believe you have a meat theme study to discuss today. Yes, um, and don't worry, there's not going to be any of those big words that Molly decided to use. Oh, phew, that was more than enough. <laughs> I was going to say, I just I just mentioned three genes. I didn't even bother naming them because I was... <laughs> <laughs> See, that's all I <laughs> Too much of a tongue twister for me, I think. Um, yeah, so the study that I picked today is about cultured meats. Scientists from Osaka University in Japan were able to assemble a Wagyu steak from cultured meat. Um, and one reason behind this study is to improve sustainability, as with raising cattle, obviously, as we know, uh, has a large contributor to climate emissions, uh, quite uh, gassy animals. Um, so it's quite unsustainable, but cultured meats have been gaining some real popularity. I remember there was a study not so long ago that was um, cultured seafood, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so the kind of general consensus is that cultured meats could be a good alternative uh, to the sustainability kind of still eating meat general train of thought. Mm -hmm. So the cultured meats that are currently available are poorly organized. Their fibers are all muscle. Um, so they generally don't have the same appearance as, say, any kind of hunk of meat you could buy at the shop and the scientists in the current study were able to make this Wagyu steak actually appear as it does you know more like it does in real life as I don't know if any of you guys know this I have never had Wagyu before but it's marbled it has like intramuscular um properties so it has lines of muscle going through the lines of sorry lines of fat going through the muscle these um these are the cows that get fed beer and massaged, right? <laughs> I did hear that there are there are a very specific type of cow uh, <laughs> in Japan, so maybe that's why they're like expensive. Yeah, they sound like they're living a life of luxury until they uh, yeah. These these cows are <laughs> until... far, far better treated than any of us. 
Yeah. <laughs> I googled as you were writing as you were talking about this, and it came up with Wagyu beef, the world's most luxurious steak. So yeah, yeah it's very nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this what Salt Bay does in his restaurant? Is that Wagyu? <laughs> talking about the um sustainability and obviously the kind of um environmental impacts. Molly, did you write on a study about methane from cows? recently as well i don't think i did am i just making that up okay i I saw this study on their site it was about i don't know if molly had written it but it was about had they been potty training cows i did i did write about yeah i thought i wasn't going crazy i'm sure you wrote something yeah okay yeah they were training them to use a toilet inside their shed essentially so that they weren't pooping outside in the wilderness Okay, well, perhaps slightly cows. different angle to what I thought, but <laughs> so there's we've got lots of different strategies to try and get these cows to to fart less, but um, cultured <laughs> yeah, meat does <laughs> cultured meat does seem the most successful. What do you want to fill us in on how they how how do you make cultured yeah. meat anyway? <laughs> feel that that was quite a tangent there, guys. <laughs> um, so yeah, the scientists were able to isolate stem cells from the wagyu cows, and from those they were then able to produce uh, fat fibers blood vessels and muscle fibers um and then the 3d bioprinted it into the arrangement that it would be naturally um which is what has like it gave it the authentic look um i don't think it was edible yet i think that was one uh point of the study that it, it wasn't actually an edible steak but it looked a lot like the real thing um and it just kind of made us think that because this is a, a festive episode um if they're doing things with fish and they're doing things with steak i mean in a few years time what if they did you know a whole turkey would you guys eat that for christmas day i Buy definitely would i feel like lab grown meat surely that's got to be the future i've tried some like from the shops <laughs> and really? I really really like the like vegetarian meat substitute type stuff it's, it's yeah. nice mm-hmm. I was gonna say if it's if the animal that it's supposed to be from say if it's so it's it's this like wagyu steak but it wasn't ever a live cow does that make it vegetarian oh wow <laughs> <laughs> That's I don't think kind so. Of, you know, that's I mean, I'm like... vegetarian and I'd probably eat it, but I don't know what that means. Interesting. <laughs> the the I guess the underlying cells though are still taken from a living, yeah, animal. Mm. I don't know. That that's a question. Mean... I think that's a question in a question in a question. That yeah. one. Yeah, yeah that's this a whole like other podcast. Mm. <laughs> I think like so. Really yeah, I think as well. Like it is like we. The appeal of food, isn't it? It is all by appearance, really. So, like, I guess it is important to kind of replicate the look and feel if you're trying to kind yeah. of bring this into something that people would consider like day to day. So, yeah, I think one point of the study was that they could possibly use it in the future to kind of alter fat content and uh, kind of stylize it to somebody's personal ideal meat cut, which is quite okay. interesting. And I guess wow. as well, you've got like real meat taste without any of the issues that come with yeah. like farming, like animal mm-hmm. cruelty, stuff like that. So definitely, I think yeah. it's a good thing. And you know, turkey just seems like a low-hanging fruit. You know, it, 
like wagyu's the, uh, you know the luxurious well i don't think anyone's saying that you know the the taste of taste and texture of turkey couldn't be slightly improved by uh by science you know there's a Nothing there, worse but... than drying it out too much. Oh, oh, I actually have worst. a friend whose mum used to cook the turkey a week before, freeze it, and then defrost it on Christmas Day, which mm. I think is just criminal. Because why would you do that? I feel a bit um, unwell. <laughs> yeah, but um... well, uh, you know, all the the foods we've discussed. I mean, unless you're having a really stressful Christmas Day most of us will eat all these foods with some kind of implement and not just our bare hands. And the study I want to discuss looks to the future of cutlery. So uh, let's put sort of fancy silverware to the side for a second and consider that in England alone, this is a crazy stat, in England alone, on average, each person in England uses 37 single-use plastic items of cutlery each year, which I reckon if I did my maths on the wee uh, Windows calculator right earlier, equates to over 2 billion items of plastic cutlery a year in England alone. Jeez, that's a lot. 2 billion. Wow. Oh. Wow, yeah. It's um, it's a really shocking fact that, you know, all of these items of plastic cutlery are being used, plastic plates. And although some governments are making efforts to restrict and or ban the sale of these items, if we could produce sustainable cutlery that has the flexibility of plastic, but isn't disposable, it could be reused, or if it is uh, disposable, it could be less polluting. That would make a, a real big difference to sort of environmental efforts. So the study I'm discussing is by a team of researchers at the University of Maryland, and they have done just that. So they have created a hardened wooden knife uh, that can slice a steak more easily than steel. Uh, and uh, you can read the, the study as you'll be able to read all these other studies in our show notes. So. Uh, the, the team that was led by senior author Teng Li um, kind of noted that not only have you got this problem with plastic cutlery, that also conventional cutlery is made using really high energy processes, so steel processes, uh, you know, and they, they were looking for something that could be an alternative to, to high energy producing or polluting um, cutlery options. So they took uh, a North American wood called basswood um, that regularly is soft, slight brown, doesn't look like something you'd be able to quite easily cut through uh, cut through meat with. But um, they noted that there's a biopolymer in the wood called lignin, which is a, a really significant obstacle to hardening as it forms these kind of a matrix of kind of tubes that run through the, uh, the wood, the middle of the wood. So they prepared the wood by bathing it in a chemical mixture that was able to break down this matrix. And then they essentially squished the wood. Um, to use a scientific term, really hard, which sort of crushed all the fibres and pores that are running through the middle of it and squeezed out any residual water. And then they stuck it through a hot press, which further compacted it. And at the end of that, they produced a block of wood that when it was dried out, had a what is called a Brunel hardness number. There's a, a, a number for how hard things are. And this uh, Brunel hardness number it came out as was 23 times that of natural basswood. And the process was obviously also less energy guzzling than something that would be used to create ceramic or steel. So uh, they had this, this really hard knife. And then when they were able to cut through the, the knife in particular ways to, to create a, a sharp edge, uh, they showed that using sharpness cutting uh, tests, which is the, the, the standard one for these, is by cutting through a polymer wire while calculating the force at which the wire severs. So if you imagine the, the wire is being suspended in air and the knife is cutting through it. When the knife was sawed back and forth across the wire, 
0.75 kilograms of force was required to cut it, whereas a steel table knife doing the same thing needed 1.77 kilograms of force. So it's actually sharper than a you know a table knife, which is pretty remarkable, I thought. Um, and uh, if you go and explore the, the link in our show notes, you can even see a video of this uh, hard wooden knife cut through a medium rare steak. The steak looks actually delicious. I don't personally eat steak, but it's kind of tempting me to... I did notice that they cut, you know, on a steak, you've got the little fatty bit at the end. They're kind of cutting through that, which I feel, you know, maybe a bit of a cop out. I want to see them go right through the middle of it. And I'm sure, yeah, if you watch the video yourselves, you'll agree. But nonetheless, it looks delicious. They've even got a little sight. I think they've got some broccoli on there, Molly, which I'm sure you'll hate. Um, but it is a, a good example of the kind of innovation that we see from material science in solving these environmental problems. And, uh, you know, when... I think at the, the end of our main meal, we've got our fractal cauliflower, you know, our, our gene-edited broccoli. We've got our, uh, you know, our, our Wagyu beef made from stem cells. And, and we can cut it all with our, our hardened wooden knife in, in some beautiful Christmas future. Hopefully no splinters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's impressive cool. that it cut with less force than a standard... I know. Especially for steak, definitely. Although you're saying that you thought it was a bit of a cop out with that bit at the end of the steak that's the fatty bit. Sometimes that can be the toughest bit to get through if you don't have a good quality steak. So well, maybe this is Wagyu, you know, I can't so, really tell. Oh, yeah, video, but... yeah, it depends if that fat's rendered. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, we obviously finished our, our main course of our Christmas dinner and presumably we're all sort of lying on the couch, barely able to eat anything else. But uh, Lucy has a further study to discuss, which involves, of course, the standard post-Christmas dinner consumption of massive amounts of chocolate. So, Lucy, do you want to tell us a bit about your chocolate study? I do, indeed. <laughs> I'm really going to try and redeem myself here from my earlier Brussels sprout comment. <laughs> so I'm going in with chocolate. Everyone loves chocolate. Um, and back in September this year, scientists basically found the key to making perfectly smooth and glossy chocolate, which is a complete dream, because... Um, we all know that the best kinds of chocolates are like the creamy, smooth, like melt in your mouth ones. And sorry in advance if this is making you as hungry as it's making me because I'm thinking about going to the kitchen straight after this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've never tried to make chocolate at home, but apparently making chocolate, which has this perfect finish and has that really nice, um, like satisfying snap, isn't it isn't easy basically and it's all down to like tiny variations in the quality of the ingredients the temperature the mixing and the timings can all set you up to fail even if you're learning from the best of the best Um, but the results of this new study are making it basically easier than ever to create the perfect chocolate and have led um, to kind of like a new technique that will help lower chocolate waste and failed batches in bigger chocolate manufacturing companies. Um, The study lead also said that this new way of making chocolate will actually also improve on the carbon carbon footprint of the chocolate making process because it takes less energy requirements to make it as well. Also, at this point, I should say that they also think that this new technology will bring the price of chocolate down and make it creamier as well. And again, this just sounds like a magical Christmas It's a Christmas dream. miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it good? Um, so to basically get into it, the team was led by a food scientist called Dr. Alejandro Margongoni, and they were studying the typical kind of chocolate creation process. 
So one key step in the chocolate making process is called tempering and it's a process I kind of knew existed already because I don't know about you but I watch a lot of these how to make chocolate like programs that are on telly in between Christmas and New Year um, but essentially it's a really expensive very time consuming process and it gives you a chocolate with a really nice glossy finish and it also means that the chocolate snaps uh, when you break it rather than crumbles when you break off a little piece. Um, the tempering process is basically where you slowly heat up and then slowly cool down the chocolate so the fats crystallise uniformly um, and chocolatiers will also use something called seeding during this tempering process to make the chocolate crystallise. Um, the so-called seed is basically just chunks or grated bits of already tempered chocolate that act a bit like a magnet so it attracts the loose crystals of fatty acids into a line. Um, apparently a really good chocolatier can do this by eye because you know their experience will tell them when the chocolate is ready and they can also make adjustments if it's not really quite there yet but that just can't be done in the larger scale manufacturing chocolate factories um, because chocolate manufacturers actually use special equipment called tempering units but even those can fail and then you can end up with large variability between your different batches. But after lots of testing, the team found that adding a secret ingredient, which was one, simple, and two, really inexpensive, was the like so-called perfect seed. Um, and this so-called secret seed is a phospholipid. And mixing it into the melted chocolate and rapidly cooling it sped up crystallization without the need for any tempering. So it completely took out the need for those big tempering units that large chocolate manufacturers actually use. The team then also, this was really cool, used a scanner on the chocolate which used light beams that are millions of times brighter than the sun and found that their chocolate was structurally perfect as well as really glossy and really strong. So it was essentially the best quality. And I think this wow. is really exciting because it not only is it to do with chocolate, we're on the last course, but it means that chocolate could just be made cheaper and better tasting. Um, and it's incredible that just by simply adding one component removes the need for all these massive machines, meaning maybe smaller manufacturers might be able to make chocolate, meaning more chocolate for us, which especially at Christmas seems to be a good thing. I'm sold. I'm sold too. Is there like a, a GoFundMe for this research? I know, it needs to be, doesn't it? I was involved. Yeah, how do I invest? <laughs> I think the... as well, if it can lower the price, I've found recently, obviously, because companies don't want to increase the price of chocolate bars, they just make them smaller, which upsets oh. me because you don't get as much chocolate. Yes. Um, so... what's that, what's that called? It's called shrinkflation, isn't it? I think so, yeah. So They make it thinner as well, and I'm yeah. like, this isn't good. Yeah. A regular Twix, you know, it can't even be seen by the human eye anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they have the, the, the they have the goal though to call like the the regular sized Twix like a Twix family. No. <laughs> so just to get some regular, you know, regular sustenance, you're eating like a gargantuan sharing grab bag family sized piece of chocolate and feeling awful about yourself. But I was um, going to say the shame. Shame. But yeah, hopefully this could make it kind of cheaper, better tasting, much easier, like better for the environment. So you feel a little bit better whilst you're eating it. I think we I'm should in. maybe look into who's investigating this and we could do like a, a blind taste test in the office, perhaps. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. That I, would be amazing. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah. 
We oh. can't point any fancy lasers at it, so we'll have to eat it instead to see if it's perfect. But our oral, oral microbiomes might be slightly different, so... True. All bacteria love chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's my standpoint. <laughs> I can't, can't argue with that. Um, well, thank you everyone for sharing your Christmas studies with me. I'm uh, feeling especially hopeful for 2022 after hearing that chocolate one. Um, and I hope you all have a mince pie nearby that you can tuck into as a reward for all your hard work on the year of opinionated science. Now, we'll be back in 2022 with more easy to digest science and hopefully as few podcasts as possible about the coronavirus pandemic. But until then, please keep sharing your science opinions with us across our social media. Uh, feel free to take a break on Christmas and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.